the only visual I can give anyone is the experience was just like con air, but worst. What kept me alive? My children. I was living for those visits, feeling my kids and seeing them and my ex-husband. And the other thing that kept me alive was my delusion, the hope that I was going to come out every day. At some point, I was losing hope. I'm Doug Bobes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest is Ingrid Delamar Kenny. Ingrid is a French American entrepreneur. She's an author and a wellness expert. I was introduced to Ingrid through our mutual friend and rock star human Lauren Bostic. I immediately became enamored with Ingrid's story and wanted to dive into it on the show. Ingrid's life completely fell apart in her late 20s when she was arrested by the FBI and accused of internet fraud for selling jeans online. She was sentenced to four years in federal prison which seemed quite harsh given the crime. She immediately appealed her case and fought tooth and nail for her freedom, her family, and her life. Ingrid comes on the show today to share how clinging on to hope when her life felt impossible helped her win the appeal, overturn the sentence, be a mother to her kids, and live to tell the story. So let's welcome Ingrid Delamar Kenny to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into your story. We got connected through our mutual friend, Lauren Bostic, and she was on my show. And I've obviously I've been on their podcast as well and just told me that I got to have you on the show and dig more into your story. And I'm really inspired by how you've taken the negative experience you had where you were essentially you were indicted federally. Spent time in prison a little over a decade ago for a crime that was really, I guess, from what I understand, was unjustified given the crime that you committed. So let's start there because I'm fascinated from the overcoming adversity story, like how you came from prison to now. But you went to prison for for selling what, like thirty thousand dollars in jeans or something? First of all, I want to return the compliment to you because I'm very impressed with your story, which is very similar to mine. So Lauren's my best friend. When you went on her podcast, she, right away she called me and she said, "You've got to meet this guy. You have to have him on your podcast." So you know, you're coming on my podcast. We're doing a swap, and it's so rare for me to meet people that have a similar past to mine and that are talking about it freely. And it, it, I think you're one of the only ones so far that I've met. So I'm returning all of these beautiful compliments to you. Now about your question. So back in 2006 or 2007, 2006, I was actually not doing that anymore. But for a few years before that, when my son, who is now 22 years old, was diagnosed with being on the spectrum of autism, I was working in fashion and... They told me, listen, you can go to mainstream therapy or you could do some private therapy with more hope that he will function as a normal adult later. And the mainstream therapy just put those kids on the spectrum, which is it's government funded. It puts them in a place where they can function as autistic kids, but don't really get a chance at a normal future, right? So at the time, 
I had realized right after my pregnancy that I had lost weight because, you know, being the mom of an autistic child. So my second daughter was born and I lost a lot of weight right after she was born because that's about the time that Dylan was diagnosed. I started selling jeans, my jeans on eBay, like my seven jeans, like this rock and rip up, you know, like all these expensive jeans at the time. And I realized it was selling so well. I even sold them for more money than what I had bought them for. So when I was faced with his diagnosis a few years later and needing to make extra money, I started to not only sell most of my wardrobe on eBay and realized there was so much money in that, but I started going to all these stores in New York because that's where from originally. Now I'm in Monaco, but we were from New York. And I started to buy like all these jeans in bulk from all these uh, outlets like Century 21 and, you know, all these stores that we have in New York and selling them on eBay. My business grew so much and I was able to pay for very advanced private therapies for Dylan that were really helping and the business blew up. So I opened the website and at that time, a woman from Virginia who was buying from me was like, listen, you're awesome. I love what you do. I love the sourcing of these jeans. Like, how do you find them? They were authentic. And I, she asked me to go partners with her. She said, look, you can be my wholesaler and I'll be the storefront. I'll, I'll sell. And so we went into business together and we were doing extremely well. And then we parted ways. But throughout the time we were doing, we were doing business together, I did realize that there was a problem. I was getting some emails. People would finally find me as a partner and say, look, I ordered, you know, three pair of jeans. I only got one. I ordered, you know, 50 juicy tracksuits and I only got 10. And like, I paid you guys. And I would go back to her since she was the, you know, the front person and say like, what the heck is going on? And I kind of like took a deep dive into it and turned my head away. And that's where I was guilty. Unfortunately, I, I left that business. I started to do really, really well in the fashion industry. And a few years later, when this was like a forgotten business completely, the FBI showed up at my door and said I was indicted for non-delivery of goods, mail fraud, wire fraud. And all of that was because this was a pioneer case that was going to set precedent for the very new internet crimes, because internet crimes were very new. And unfortunately, I was indicted in Virginia because she was there. And all the money would, that people sent would be sent to Virginia, which is a Commonwealth state where they are extremely drastic. And I got four years in prison. She got nothing. So you can imagine that I got railroaded and God knows what happened there. And I was sentenced to medium high security prison in Danbury because I hold also a French passport, which made me at flight risk. And from there ended up in prison for selling $28,000 worth of jeans that were not delivered. And then the fine ended up being like like $130,000. Like the, the whole crime, when you look at the indictment, it shows that it was $28,000 worth of jeans that people didn't receive or received very, very late. And then that huge, you know, that huge fine. Mm. But yes, technically in New York, the time definitely didn't fit the crime, but also the level of security in the prison that I was, there's a camp also, there were Martha Stewart went, for example, and I didn't get to go to the camp because I had a foreign citizenship. Wow. So uh, there's so many questions I have, but I guess to start, I want to get into like the whole judicial process of how everything transpired. So what was the timeline like from 
the day the FBI comes and raids your house, and I'm assuming you're in complete shock, right? Shock. As a matter of fact, I always say that story when they came to the door. First of all, again, they came to the door with like, you know, those FBI windbreakers. They were like seven, eight of them. They were wearing those, what do you call them? Bulletproof vests. Bulletproof vests. They had weapons in their hands. And they're coming for a woman that they know has her baby in the house, nonviolent and Mm. working out of her kitchen, really. Like, so that already was insane. So when I opened the door and they were like, FBI, you know, and they said my name and I said, I don't know what my husband did, but he's not here. And they were like, oh, no, no, we're not here for your husband. We're here for you. Mm. That's how shocked I was. So I didn't even get arrested. This one was so crazy. I did not get arrested ever. I never wore handcuffs until I actually won my appeal and had to be transported back to Virginia in front of the judge to be remanded, right? So I was never arrested. The the state of New York had to be involved. So at that point, when the FBI comes to indict you, they come with FBI agents from New York and the New York side treated me according to the crime. So they they came in and they were like, no handcuffs, no arrest. You know, she will show up in Virginia the day of her indictment. And that's pretty much what went down. So they, just, they asked to come into the house. They said they had a warrant. They searched the whole house. They took my computer. They took my phone. And then they tried to take my own jeans because they assumed I was merchandise. But then I showed them like, look, those are mine. You, you won't find anything. So they're like, well, can we get some of your merchandise? And I had some in my attic. So they went and took like four or five pairs of jeans which I think worked in my favor because at least they got to see they were real. You know, at least I didn't have to deal with the whole fake merchandise claim. There was no such claim in my indictment, by the way. Then they told me, okay, you'll have to show up for the day of your indictment. You have time to hire a lawyer. And so that's what happened. I got indicted and I think I went to be arraigned maybe a month later with my lawyer. And again, I was not arrested. They let me out on my own recognizance. And they said, I didn't plead guilty. So we went to trial. The trial was, I think, like seven, eight months later. So this really stretches out in time. And then after that, the trial happened. And you have sentencing months later. And when sentencing arrived, the judge said, well, because you're nonviolent and like the character, right, that you are, they, they do a whole pre-trial report on you and they kind of see who they're dealing with. You can go and present yourself at the prison. And so that's what I did. I was sentenced to four years in prison. I right away, we started an appeal. And then when like my attorneys thought they really could keep me out during the appeal. But of course, because it's Virginia and they absolutely wanted me to go behind bars And because in Virginia, 99.9% of the federal cases have never overturned, I was in that 1% and that was a miracle. They said, no, she has a French passport. She's at slight risk. Now that she's convicted, she has to go to prison. And I pretty much turned myself in two months later. Mm. And then I was in there for a year, for over a year, 14 months. I can't imagine the level of anger and pain and sadness that was going through your mind at this time. Because I think like worst case scenario, originally you, were, you, you heard it was just going to be like house arrest, right? I think where people can really take some insights from the situation mm-hmm. is like, how do you maintain and regulate your emotions during a time of chaos? 
that if you don't regulate those emotions can make matters much worse because we all know in the prison system, if you get into a fight, if you snap on a CO, if you do drugs or do anything illegal in there, they're tacking time onto your sentence. Like what, what kind of things kept you grounded? Like what kind of things did you think about that kept you from really acting in a way that would extend your sentence? Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. This includes Organifi green juice, which I am now using in my smoothies, either after a workout or for a great on-the-go snack. It's loaded with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Cutting down on caffeine is a big initiative of mine as we head into the new year, and Organifi's red juice is gonna help me do just that. It's basically a superfood fruit punch that gives me a jolt of energy without the caffeine, and it only has two grams of sugar. If you aren't into smoothies, don't worry. Organifi products are super easy to mix, and you can add one scoop to a glass of water. So go to www.organifi.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. First of all, I wasn't going to act in a way that was going to lengthen my sentence, but I was very afraid because there's two sides. So you go in and you have like a drug crime and, you know, or they take you off your meds. There's a lot of people like that. And automatically they're going to have some behavioral issues. In my case, it's a white collar crime and I'm put with a general population of females that are very problematic. A lot of them are very violent offenders. A lot of them are very heavily involved in drug crimes. And a lot of them have nothing to lose because they're doing life in prison. So can you imagine putting someone who is so young, who's 29 years old, having three small children, one of which is autistic, and they put you in a general population of women that have, one of them had cut her baby in pieces, microwaved it, and gave it to her husband to eat. Like, that's one of the women. You know, other women were so, like, into all these gangs. And, I mean, some were very violent, some were very dangerous, some were very connected to sorts of gangs and mafias, whatever. And there's a very small percentage of women who are there for white collar crimes, but the white collar crime that these women were there for were at the level of, you know, made off. So that level, they get like 15 years, 20 years in prison. And here I am with this crime that for federal is so petty and not having the appearance that is going to fit in at first. I look so young. I look so, you know, so fragile and so like not from that world. Right. And so when you walk in, my worry wasn't that I was going to lash out or I was going to misbehave in the way that was going to lengthen my sentence. My worry was to get kind of like trapped by someone or, you know, that they were going to make something happen, put something in my locker that would make me guilty of something. That's what I was afraid of because you have to realize that's also what happened to me just being caught in this crime. I was railroaded. So at that point, my focus was to not get tripped up because that's right. what happens to people like me. What kept me alive? My children. My depression was not because of what I was feeling physically or what I was seeing or what I was being put through. My, my biggest depression and where I contemplated suicide at times were the separation from my children and just not knowing for how long. 
So I had the delusion for a few months because I really didn't know how this worked. My lawyers were from New York originally, so they were like, they had never seen this before in New York, which is why we didn't expect this sentence. And then going from this delusion and realizing that every day I wasn't coming out and it wasn't going to happen like that, and then the children. So what kept me alive were the visits. I was living for those visits, kind of, you know, feeling my kids and seeing them and my ex-husband. And that's the only thing that kept me alive for a long time. Mm-hmm. The other thing that kept me alive was my delusion, the hope that I was going to come out every day rather yeah. than doing it could take a year. Well, I think what's really interesting and ironic about that whole situation is it seems that yeah, I think you had so much turmoil in your life. If you think about how your marriage was unraveling and the crimes that you were in there for and just the depression that, that goes with all of that and being stripped away from your kids. But the irony is that the thing that kept you alive and going was this delusion that you were getting out yeah. and you were going to see your kids soon. But it seems that also contributed to your depression because it probably gave you in turn some sense of hopelessness after each time you thought you were getting out like this day, this week, this yeah. month, and the time just kept going and going and going. And then you realize like, oh shit, like I'm really yeah, in here. So you're right. There is this destructive thing inside because every day you're let down, right? Every day you look at the R&D door where people live, like are going to leave from, and you have all these inmates that go, oh, honey, no one ever wins their appeal. You're going to stay here because that's really how all these inmates speak to you. And you're not supposed to tell them about your case. So I wouldn't, but a lot of people could see my hope and they're like, you're delusional, but that delusion kept me alive. And then, you know, of course, having these lawyers, I had a great team of lawyers. My family spent a lot of money. My ex-husband undebted us, right? We, we put like two mortgages on our house and credit lines. And, but that gave me hope. And at some point, I was losing hope. And the mm. time that I lost hope was, I think, after 11 months, we won the appeal. We found out we won the appeal. But I thought I would be out the door the next day, and it wasn't like that. There's a whole process of whether, you know, are we getting a new trial? Am I just found out guilty? But no, in this case, they found a way that I had to be remanded to trial and all this stuff. And the process alone of applying the appeal and getting out took a few more months. And that's where the delusion were like, I'm never going to get out of here. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because I think this is a really interesting and, and kind of like, I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but part of your story where you go through this appeal process and you have people that are fighting to get you in touch with like yeah. former president and people that are high up in the political system and you're talking to people in France. And then finally, finally, you get this appeal and you win and you think you're getting out. But then that ends up, what ends up unraveling is this insane process where now you have to go before the judge, you have to go through sentencing and you talk about it being like this con air experience. So if you could walk the audience through like what happened between the time you won your appeal and how you actually got released. So, I mean, to get really a feel of what it was and how surreal it is, even if you know the system and it, it doesn't happen this way for everyone. And I think that you know, you were mentioning, so I won my appeal on merits of the case, right? Like we had, you know, Nat Lewin, who was an amazing attorney, still an amazing attorney, a pioneer in, you know, changing laws around and, you know, in Washington. And so he was my appeal lawyer and we won the case on merit. But then we had to literally, we noticed 
that the government was so angry that I was fighting back and they were not used to that, that there were all these kind of things happening to not let this appeal happen. And so, you know, my lawyer was like, usually an appeal, we get an answer within six months and seven months, eight months, nine months, nothing. That's where some higher ups started pushing, telling the fourth circuit, like, why aren't we getting an answer? I mean, what's going on? And it really felt like I was being railroaded again. And so at the time when I won my appeal, finally, because we pushed to get the answer, I had won it already three months before when you look at the dates on the actual paperwork, but they just didn't want me to know. So they kind of did all these things to kind of punish me, right? For fighting. And so we find out finally, after so many people got involved and said, just give us the answer. Did she win? Did she lose? But we just want to know. And at that point, there's a whole logistic behind. You can't just get out of federal prison. You have to be remanded back in front of your judge so he can overturn the sentence and literally read what he's done wrong in his sentencing, right? So great. I'm going back to Virginia tomorrow, right? Like, let's book a flight. No, you are going to be still a prisoner. And for the first time of your life, you're going to be handcuffed and shackled because I hadn't been each time I turned myself in, right? And so that's what happened. And the transfer alone is a process. So between the time we found out I won my appeal and the time I was checked out to be transported back to Virginia, just that time alone took weeks and weeks. And when that time came, marshals came to get me in the middle of the night, because that's how it is. And I thought, okay, they're going to put me in a plane or in a bus to Virginia. Virginia is not that far, right? And I find out as I'm with these marshals driving to some airport base hours and hours later, and I'm like, I'm in Charlotte. And there they put me in a plane and I'm like, where's this plane going? And they go, oh, you're going to Oklahoma. So I'm like, wait a second, why am I going to Oklahoma to go to court in Virginia? So sheer panic. And yeah, we were on the tarmac and all of us wearing, me for the first time wearing orange because that when you're a well-behaved prisoner in federal, you don't wear orange, you wear that khaki color. The orange is for people that go in segregation and have, you know, they get strikes and they have violations and they go, they get punished in a way. First time I'm wearing orange, I'm shackled, I'm handcuffed. That had never happened to me, even though I had been in prison for a year. And there I am with a few women that also are being transported. Sometimes they transport prisoners to change prisons because they got in fights where they are or transport them to go to court. But the worst part was that we were being transported with male prisoners. And it just so happened that that transfer where a bunch of male prisoners that were very dangerous offenders. One of them was wearing the same mask as the guy in Silence of the Lambs because apparently he was like a carnivore, but like for human flesh. And we were transported with them. And the experience, the only visual I can give anyone is the experience was just like con air, but worst. I was in the plane not knowing where I was going and I kept asking the marshal, and he wouldn't tell me until we landed. And then when we landed, he's like, we're in Oklahoma. And I'm like, I'm supposed to go to Virginia. He goes, they told me to bring you to Oklahoma. No right. one's telling me anything. I don't know if my lawyer knows where I am. I'm supposed to be in Virginia for a court date. And it's like, 
two weeks, 10 days before my court date, but I thought they were transferring me to Virginia. So I would stay in, you know, a county jail there to go to court. And that wasn't the case. And at that point, hell broke loose. I mean, it was already breaking loose for me in my head, but that was like, I started to lose it. I think the worst panic I ever had was in that plane rather than that year in prison where I was like, I'm never going to see my children again. For all I know, they're taking me and they're going to kill me. Like I, I didn't know. And I ended up in a county jail in Oklahoma. I'd never been to a county jail. It's a very different experience than federal. It's not, it's actually better, cleaner, safer in a way. And I couldn't talk to my lawyer because they hadn't sent me money. They couldn't find me. And then I found out after maybe seven days without speaking to my family, they didn't know where I was. My lawyer said they lost you in the system. How great. And my court date was like 48 hours later. And what they were trying to do was for me to miss my court date. So we had, you know, a prosecutor and, you know, like a government that was so angry that I won that case, which was supposed to make case law for them for internet crimes. It was me and the Napster kid. So it was my case and his case. And those were like really, really heavily prosecuted because they were supposed to make case law for all these new crimes that were like internet crimes. And so lost in the system. So you can imagine what I went through in my head. I'm in Oklahoma. I keep asking, you know, the guards, I need to talk to my lawyer. And they, no, your lawyer will call you. But my lawyer for like seven to eight days didn't know where I was. And I just thought I would never get out of it. I'm like, okay, I have been lost here. They were all looking for me, my husband, my parent, my mother, my brother, everyone had been lost in the system. And finally, of course, the lawyers took some measures and I was then transported to North Carolina. So they took me down the country, then to back up to Virginia, which is crazy. And at that point, that experience in the overnight stay in that county jail in North Carolina, and I was supposed to be transported to Alexandria County Jail the, the next day for my court date the day after, that North Carolina stay felt like going to the gas chamber. It was so scary. And that was like another experience. I guess you have to read the book to get all the emotions and the smell and kind of what happened to me. But at that time, what was crazy is having done a year in federal prison and getting to a point where you're going back to be released, right? But you're being put through something that you haven't been put through as if everything that had been put through wasn't bad enough. They stripped me down and they sprayed me with some sort of pesticide because it was a county jail where they had a problem with, I don't know, some sort of bacteria or whatever. Like the stuff that happened to me in that county jail it was like, no, Ingrid, you're not going to get out of this before we completely destroy you. And that's what it was. Mm. And by the time I arrived in Virginia, my face, my body was burnt with that pesticide. I was peeling all over. Like I was literally like losing my mind. Wow. God, I can't imagine the emotional roller coaster that you were on during that time where essentially, like we, we said earlier, you win this appeal and you think that it's over, you're getting released. And then now you're being transported for sentencing and you guys hired like the best of the best when it came to sentencing wow. lawyers to help you see this through and make sure that you won. And then along that path to get there, you end up you know, experiencing all these other traumatic experiences in these different county jails and different transportation services to get there. 
And then something else happens, right? So you end up going there, things go as planned, you win the appeal, you're released, or you're told you're released, and things are going to be good. Your family's my there. I've been told to bring my bag and, like, so I can change and to just wait for me behind that door, like behind that, you know, wall. And they're processing me out. And then the processing out is supposed to take like a few minutes, but I'm still handcuffed. So I tell the marshal, like, dude, didn't you just hear the judge? We're right behind me. Why do you have your hand on your gun? He just released me. So now he goes, that's the process until they sign you out. Your lawyers are going to go and like sign you out until they do that. You're still a prisoner. And then two hours pass and I'm trying to, I'm starting to scream. I'm in a holding cell at the courthouse, like on, in the basement. I'm screaming, anybody? Hello, I'm supposed to be released. And they came the first hour. They're like, yeah, your lawyer's right there. He's doing it. Second hour, the third hour, I'm losing my mind. And they come and they go, something happened and well, you're not being released today. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, am I being charged for another crime? Like, I didn't know. And then they're like, we're going to bring you back to the county jail where you slept last night. And they'll tell you everything. And so at that point, I'm like, but my family's outside. And they go, your family will figure it out. Your lawyer will figure it out. They transform it back. And at that point, I arrived there. And the CEO that was there was like, good luck. Have a great life. It was pretty cool. He's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. And the marshal that transported me back gave him a file. He opened it. He looked at it. He shook his head. He looked at me and he goes, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, Homeland Security is here for you. And I'm like, what? They go, he goes, you have a French passport, right? I'm like, yeah, so? But I, I'm like, I'm, I'm American as well, right? My kids, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm, he goes, I'm so sorry. I have to release you to their custody. And at that point, I had to wait overnight in a cell. There was like no bed. I lay down on the floor. I was crying. I thought it was the end of my life. I was able to have one phone call. So I called my brother who was handling my lawyer and everything. And he said, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do anymore. The lawyers found me an immigration lawyer because all these lawyers, my appeal, my appeal lawyer, my sentencing lawyer, that's not their thing. They don't know what to do. They, they won, right? And at that point, it's like, look, you know, we're going to call the French government. And, and so I was transported to Homeland Security, which was another crazy thing. I mean, that's another, like, this is crazy. You feel like you're with secret services in some crazy science fiction movie. And when I get there, they're really nice to me. The difference between Homeland Security and federal is that they understand you're human and they look at you for the person that you are. So I ended up, of course, they put me in a holding cell, but it was way cleaner. You know, they don't have prisoners overnight. Those are people that have, and they pretty much said to me, look, the involvement of the French government, the ambassador, the, the president, like all these stuff, this is costing you. They want you, they will not release you until you agree to be deported. And to me, that was insane. Mm. And we fought it. And then the ambassador of France from Washington came the next day. And uh, you have to read all the details in my book. But he worked it out with them and I was released. And that was horrible because this whole thing was constantly like getting to the point where even the judge that put me in prison releases me. And I still wasn't going home. So at that point, I was like, I'm never going to go home. Like I might as well die. And you, this is a really interesting point to talk about. And there's a lot of people, Ingrid, that 
either listening to the show or people that might listen to the show, if it's passed on to them or what have you, that they just feel like they continue to fail. And no matter what they do, just life keeps knocking them down time and time again. And they feel hopeless, very similar to I'm sure the feelings that you felt after you continued to get one step ahead in the prison system, then two steps back, two steps ahead, one step back. Like, What advice would you have either to your younger self or to somebody who's going through something similar to inspire them to keep going despite the circumstances that they're in? That is such a good question. And it's such a loaded question because in my case, and I'm sure you've had this, you know, I get automatically in this, you know, fight or flight mode. Right. The way that this translates to me is either I survive through delusion, but ultimately delusion in my case is having this goal, manifesting a positive outcome, but I don't just sit there. I do the flight or fight and the fight for me is I'm going to take this situation and I'm going to think of how to get this to a positive outcome and kind of just do it. And if that doesn't work, then I might as well die. But why would you die before you even try? So then I get into this fight mode and I have all these options, some of them insane, some of them not. And I apply them because those are the options that I thought out to get me to a more positive outcome. And I'm like, okay, you want to die? That's great. But first try those four or five things. And if they don't get you to a more positive situation or the outcome you're looking for, then you can die. And that's kind of like what I always said to myself. And so it's kind of like how I went through it. It's like when I was in Oklahoma, I was like, you know what? Hold on, hold on until the court day, you know, do your thing, stay quiet. Don't speak to nobody, you know, And if that doesn't work, you can die. You know what I mean? And it's like, rather than just giving in and giving up and saying, okay, you know what? I'll die right now. I've been doing that my whole life. I still do it. In any Mm. given situation, I'm like, okay, Ingrid, three to five options of things that you can do to just make the situation better. And Mm. that somehow is already taking the lemons, cutting them in half and starting to squeeze them. And then if they have no juice, then you can just throw them out, but at least try That's some really good advice because you're right. Like I think there's a lot of people that they'll give up before trying certain things that are known or that they know will help them feel better or get through that moment or get through that day or whatever it is so that they can live to see another day. And they, they just end up like, they feel like they've exhausted all their options. And I think if you can switch that and say, I'm going to do whatever it takes, I'm not going down without a fight. Like I'm going to continue to do every single possible thing until it's done. It gives you a really good shot to get through. It doesn't guarantee you that you will, but it at least keeps you in that game. I I know one of the hardest things for people to do when they get out of the prison system is adjust to like normal life. So what were some of the things that you had to do or some of the challenges? Like, How did you adjust early on after you got out? So for me, it was my guilt towards my kids. For a year, you know, they were taken care of by their dad, who's my husband, but he had never really been very involved in that whole, all that stuff. He wasn't carrying that in that sense. He worked and that's what he did. And so I knew that for a year I had felt them and that guilt had me get home, take a shower, sit for the last dinner that I didn't cook. It was cooked by my husband at the time and saying, you know what, I don't have a right to be a victim. I don't have a right to be fucked up in my head. You know, I did this to them. 
a year of their life without holding them in the morning, kissing them at night, you know, taking them to school, preparing their lunch boxes. And, you know, I had this baby who started walking without me being there. I was like, you know, I, I don't have another day to have a pity party. I owe it to them. And so I started that night. And the next day when I woke up, I got out of myself, outside of myself. And, you know, of course I was tortured at night. I could hear the keys. I could hear the steps of the guards. Like my, my whole PTSD was there, but I was like, you know, I'm going to give these kids the year that I took away from them. And that for me, that's what got me back in that routine. What was happening inside of my head was different, but all the movements and everything I was doing and giving was, I think, out of guilt towards them. Like I owe them to not add another day to their sentence. So that's how it went for me. So what did that relationship with them look like? Was was there a sense of fear? Were they scared to kind of be around you knowing what you went through? Like how did how did that all play out? They were, it was like I never left. You have wow. to be like were visiting me quite a bit mm. and more I think I was the most visited you know the the most visited inmates my heck my ex-husband really you know he had a very strong relationship with his mom and then she died kind of tragically and so he was he had his bad sides but one thing that was wonderful about him is how much he loved my relation with my kids and he really unlike a lot of inmates that end up having a spouse or an ex-spouse that just brainwashes the kids and, you know, creates this gap between the mother and the kids. He actually did, still spoke so beautifully of me and didn't really tell them I was in prison or, you know, so when I came home, it's like I never left, but the thing that they were left with and I could see it, I, the first time I took them back to school, I arrived home on a Friday, I took them to school on a Monday, the two oldest one, they were still small. I could see that when I dropped them off, like they both kept on turning around and I kept on saying, don't worry. I'll be back. I'm coming back. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And so that for a long time was like, you know, don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. They, they were scared that I would be taken away again. Wow. That's, that's really cool that you were able to, to maintain this amazing relationship with your kids throughout this process as, as best as you could. Right. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of people that they go off to prison and they don't get visitations or their kids are afraid to kind of talk to them. And it seemed like your kids were, were still fairly communicative with you while you were behind bars. And then obviously, like you just said, when you got out and, and I know that a big part of your healing journey has been this shame. And I know for the longest time you were trying to figure out how you could erase your name from Google. And you went from that to now being so vocal with your story, going on podcasts, writing a book, like what shifted inside of you with that to be able to go from that place of feeling afraid to be identified as the older version of yourself to now accepting that as part of who you are and sharing so openly? That's, yeah, that's definitely been the shame. And I think that's for every, I still see it because I'm still in touch with, you know, wonderful women that I've been in prison with. And because I've met a few, I made some really bad one, but a few wonderful ones. And they still, you know, they don't want to talk about it. And they haven't told, even some of them haven't told people they're close to today that they didn't know them. And for me, yeah, it was that shame and mainly always afraid that my kids, you know, would be, you know, put aside because their mother was an ex-felon and, and, you know, and to be judged. I was afraid of being judged. And I, I moved to Monaco three years after I was released from prison. And 
mainly because I, I was just not feeling safe in the States anymore. And my paranoia was just getting the best of me. You know, and I always say to people, like you said at the beginning, when you go to prison or, or jail because you committed a crime, you go, okay, I, I committed the crime. I got caught, whether it's fair or not. In my case, I feel like I was so railroaded. You, you know, I was not supposed to go to prison for this. Maybe get, you know, some type of punishment, but not like, you know, four years in federal prison taken away from a kid that regressed in, a, in his autism as a result of my incarceration, which, by the way, was one of the reasons the sentence was overturned where the judge erred in his, you know, sentencing guidelines. It's like it happened before, so it can happen again. So when I moved to Monaco, I had this kind of epiphany that either I'm going to go in shame or I'm starting in a new place where people are always going to find out. And I realized that. And living in the fear that people are going to Google you or figure out what happened or what you are accused of doing, I just realized that it wasn't doing good for anyone. And it took me a while. It was little things. Like first, I started to tell people that I would meet, but would start to care about. So the second I got close to somebody, I realized that to understand me and to understand certain things about me, they needed to know what happened. So I would start telling people I trusted and people I ended up loving. That was my first step. And then when I would get a job, because you don't necessarily have to here, right? Like here, they're going to check my French record and it's clean. But I knew that it could happen that it would find out. So then, you know, so for me, it was gradual. And I realized that each time I trusted someone enough to finally tell them instead of hiding it, because hiding is so hard. But the acceptance that I got from it, and sometimes even the admiration, not that people admire that you go to prison, but the admiration that you overcome it, that you learn from it, and then what you do with it, right? And the fact that you then tell them the truth. So for me, it was very gradual. And then ultimately, I met my husband today, Gilles. And at first, I thought it was just going to be an affair. But then we went on like our first date, and we started talking. And I realized like, wow, I could actually fall in love for this guy. And I got so scared. I was like, I'm going to fuck this up because the minute he's going to find out that I have children, one, and then two, that, you know, I went to federal prison for a year, he's going to like go running. And so I was like, you know what? Just like I said about flight or fight, I was like, you know what? Let me fuck it up from the first date so that if he runs away, I don't have time to like fall in love with him. And the look in his face when I told him my story, he like, he started tearing up. And he looked at me and he was like, wow, you're like, you're amazing. You're a superhero. This is so cool. And again, Mm -hmm. not saying that jail is cool, but saying that my story, my survival, the the way that I got to where I was to be sitting with him at that table. And I think I loved what I saw in his eyes. And I finally was able to see what acceptance of it and no shame in his eyes and each time from that point on that I wanted to hide it from someone, all I had to do was look at myself in his eyes and how he didn't even get scared for a second. And he loved me for everything I had been through. And that day, I started to be very open about it. But on social media, it was a different story. Because my son at that time was a teen. And then in the following years, when I started to get more following on social media and a little bit more press, I kept on fearing that someone would say it on social media or, you know, in the public eye because I didn't think my son was ready and I needed him to become 
an adult to give me his consent to tell her story. Because as you see from the book, the whole story really is a culmination of his story. And so I was waiting for him to turn 18. I was waiting for him to graduate and be, you know, have this success story because we were on our way there and he was no longer technically diagnosed as on the spectrum of autism. And I started to tell my story and seeing the reaction of people calling it right away, turning adversity into success and, you know, making lemonade out of the lemons and all of that. And it totally took another dimension for me and such a relief and so empowering for my children too. The fact that I own that story so that no one could come at them. Today, my son graduated law school and I know that when he gets a job, he's not going to have a problem with that. Actually, his admission letter to the university was accepted to the law school was about my case and his motivation for becoming an attorney. Mm. So seeing that there was no shame in me and that my truth was so empowering to my children and was completely paralyzing the people that were trying to weaponize my past, as I'm sure it happens with you, that changed everything. So your, your son, who is on the spectrum for autism, ended up wanting to become an attorney because he saw how much the legal system, the judicial system had an impact on your life and that inspired him. Wow. That's, that's really yeah. awesome. And, and congrats on being so open with your story. I mean, I, I know how hard it can be. I know how challenging it can be, but I also know how healing it can be. There's, there's something to be said for being of service and taking that negative energy, that negative uh, part of your past and, and using it for something positive to help other people take a time of darkness and turn into light or be more open about their story or leave a relationship that wasn't serving them or whatever the case may be. So Ingrid, I could talk to you for days and days. I mean, I love talking about this stuff and, but I definitely want to be respectful of our time. And I think we covered so much ground in this episode and I invite people to go and buy your book. That's what it's called. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. It's called fuck my life. And it's, I mean, the, what else can you say? Right, about right. And it's the memoir of your journey. But if people want to connect with you and learn more about what you have going on, they want to check out the method, like where's the best place to do that? So the method, the actual protocol is on the method MC from Monaco MC.com Instagram. As you know, I'm super active on Instagram. There's like all these, you know, lives and there's all these IGTVs and blog posts about, you know, wellness and French etiquette and all of that stuff. So on Instagram, I'm Ingrid Delamar Kenny, and I have a podcast that you're going to be a guest of since we're doing a swap and it's pardon my French. You can find it on Apple on Spotify and everywhere else you can listen to a podcast. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to, to link your info in the show notes and wanted to once again, thank you for coming on. And for those listening, like I encourage you to do with every episode, share takeaways, share some lessons you learned, tag Ingrid and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.